because you knew we had to make sure we did at least one episode during this month. Yes, yes. This is yet another episode of Thoughts from a Counselor. We are your hosts, Libra Lester III. And Paul Singleton II. So, as always for the show, you know, we have this wonderful vision where we always tap meaningful community members to join us, you know, teach us, teach y'all, and engage with us. And once again, we have another wonderful guest with us. Sama, pause for a second so she can introduce herself and maybe throw out a quick fact about herself. Hey, everybody. Happy Sunday. I am Martin Stokes. I am a recent Bowman graduate, and I currently teach middle school a great time. Okay, all right, okay. And, uh, Paul, you want to... Just tell them who we are and what our vision is. Of course. For all our old listeners and those who are returning, we are two black counselors in training who are bridging the gap between what we were taught, what we know, and what we think we know, all through understanding the world by recognizing the world is still being formed. So without further ado, Liebert, why don't you introduce our topic today? Okay. And today's episode topic is education with educators. So... As y'all know, Paul and I are a bit of career students because we graduated from college, right? And then we went on and said, we're going to get masters. And of course, Paul, currently being a PhD candidate, is doing a lot more. But let me focus a bit, right? Because we want to talk about the current high school and below classroom. So we're in a pandemic, right? And that's changed education. But we had critiques on education before that. So who better to discuss the state of current K-12 than us who are both learning and teaching in it. And of course, our wonderful guest who is doing the same. And Paul, you can now kick us off with our first question. Absolutely. So now that we've introduced the topic and we got a great sense of where we're going today, I would love to hear how you got into being an educator. What influenced you? Kamari, I'll start with you. Okay, so... So for education, the way that I got into it is because I come from a family of educators. My grandma, she worked with early childhood education. Her mom, she was a teacher. Um, a lot of people, they may not be traditional teachers, but they are working in the education field. My mom is going to private school, things like that. So I've always been around education and in the mix of working with kids, even all of my, my jobs before actually becoming a teacher, I was either a camp counselor or a teacher's assistant in somebody's summer school classroom. So that's part of the reason how I got into it, but that wasn't the plan. I was mm-hmm. planning to be an engineer. That was going to be my thing. And then I got to Bowman and I was like, maybe not. <laughs> Only because of, mainly because of timing of Bowman has a degree engineering program like Morehouse and Clark, and you do three years at Bowman, two years at your engineering school, and I just knew that would have been too long simply because I would have spent a fourth year at Bowman. 
enrollment because of being behind in some of the prerequisite courses that I need to take. And I was like, you know what, I'll just get a master's in engineering. That didn't happen, obviously. So I just became a physics major and was like, well, I keep being put in situations where I'm working with kids. I'm really good at it. Every time I've had a boss, they're like, oh, you know, you're really good with kids. Like, how did you get this way? And I'm just like, well, this is all I've ever done. So I was really against it. I was like, I don't want to work with kids anymore. I'm over it. But then I realized that I kept being put in that position because it was my purpose. Mm-hmm. And that's how I ended up becoming becoming interested in actually going into education as a career. Um, I didn't become an education major simply because I felt like it was too late. Um, at the end of my sophomore year, and I want to switch to education, that seems like more time in school and so many was not cheap. So <laughs> I knew that there were other routes to do it. I just didn't know how to get there just yet. So that's kind of how I got into education and where I am right now. I see, I see. Okay. I definitely can relate to that formal and informal um, educators being around you and having an influence and impact on your journey to becoming an educator. I had an aunt that was a principal, but a lot of my community members, my family, cousins, and things like that taught me informally, whether it was when we were outside, whether it was – valuable lessons um, around just how Mm -hmm. right and wrong um, or quote unquote good and bad, depending on how you view it. But I think what really triggered me or influenced me was the fact that I knew my own story and I, and I realized how I felt that I was being shortchanged and knowing that I wasn't alone Mm -hmm. in that space. Right. So if I'm feeling this, yes, it's, it's very, it's weighted, it's pressure filled. However, if I'm feeling this, I can only imagine that so many other students across the nation, the world are feeling similar to me. And I had to go through those tough, those tough and difficult times um, through my K through 12 experience to really see that this, there's a need for somebody like you, Paul, there's a need for an advocate and champion for those who may feel like they don't have a voice or uh, feel like they're being slighted because they're not quote unquote, that star student or they're, labeled uh, or they're ashamed of their label of being in learning support or special needs or special education. So um, going through those experiences, having, and I've shared it again on these shows uh, multiple times, but having those experiences and realizing that we need individuals, educators specifically to champion students who feel this way, it pushed me to become an educator who supports, nurtures, and teaches any student who I may encounter. That's why I had to pursue education and become an educator. How about yourself, Lieber? Yeah, I'm um, honestly it's a it's a little bit different in my regard. Mm-hmm. So I got interested in teaching and all the various ways that one can teach because I felt like I didn't have as many good teachers past the sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, my elementary school. I ended up closing, closing down, down, and then we got moved to a new school. And I think I discussed this on um, our anxiety episode, actually. So I'll, I'll save the long-winded recount. But that was the first time I remember disliking school. 
because now I'm not in a school where teachers are actively calling on me, where teachers look like me, or where they're letting it be known that they're happy to have me in the classroom. And as we know for students, that's very important. Like, in addition to feeling like your teacher cares about what you have to say, you want to feel like your teacher cares about you. Absolutely. And it's not always easy to train teachers, train anybody to see that. Mm -hmm. Because to see that, you have to ask, well, how am I making you feel like I don't? A lot of people don't want to sit in that space of being accountable. And that's actually a pretty solid transition into our next question, because now I want to ask, what are some specific education processes that influenced your experiences? Like I know for me, for example, I just talked about <laughs> my school closing down. So I'd love to hear about similar ones for you all. Okay. Um, for me, so before, I want to say, I can't even say sixth grade because <laughs> Elementary school, I went to like four different schools. So I went to a different school every two years simply mm -hmm. because we moved a lot and stuff like that. Um, middle school, I was in the first middle school I was in, I was there for like two weeks. And mm -hmm. my mom was like, We have to get you out of this school simply because it was what people would refer to it as now a Title I school. Um, the kids are products of their environment, so what people would just call them hood kids, where in reality they're just in an environment where there's not much funding, so mm -hmm. kids get into bad things. Um, so my mom was like, we have to get you out of there because she knew that if those kids are affected by the environment, obviously I would too. And so she made sure she entered me into the lottery for another school across town so that I can actually get, like, the education she knew I could get mm. and not the one that I was getting at the school I was at for, like, two weeks. Um, outside of that, though, I had – I went to a private school for two years. That was for first and second grade, and I hated it with everything in me. Mm. I started school in a public school, so – the change from getting the shoes that you want to wear and having like non-Christian based education, I like that because I didn't like the idea of one of my grades is I have to be forced to learn the Bible and mm. memorize all these things when my mom is just like, you read it when you are ready to read it, but mm -hmm. I still learn how to pray and all these things. I was in church. I wasn't forced to do those things at home. So I didn't just, I didn't really care for it. I also didn't care for a lot of my teachers there. Um, mm -hmm. Most private schools, they don't have teachers who are certified. So mm -hmm. they kind of just hire anybody. And wow. it shows. Um, yeah. So, and it shows. Like, it shows a lot. It shows at the school my brother went to. It shows the school that I went to. Because I remember, like, I vividly remember being in first grade. My mom was, my mom was like, you're learning at home, too. My mom was not one of those parents that was like, school ended at the end of the day. So mm -hmm. your education is not just school. You learn everywhere. So my mom 
she she made it a big deal that I learned her tools. She was just like, that's something you're going to have to learn. You're going to need it. One of, well, not one of my teachers. My teacher, I remember being so excited to show her that I learned cursive. Like, I could do that. That's a new skill. And when I got to school and showed her, she told me, she was like, oh, we didn't learn that in class. So you need to stop doing that. Mm. And I was say like, she was crazy because education for me does not stop at the classroom. So her and then my second grade, I just didn't really care for her because I felt like she had a nasty attitude to it, the way she approached her students in certain situations. So that's kind of how, like, education, my going through education has influenced me because even though I had those teachers a long, long time ago, like, it's been over 10 years since I've ever seen those teachers, they, like, made me want to never be like that for mm-hmm. Like, the moment that I went back to public school, I never experienced that kind of nastiness from a teacher. And I think what made it worse is because she was simple. Like, mm. it it really made me realize that all simple and simple <laughs> is true. Like, because um, a lot of people like to say, oh, I didn't have a black teacher until, like, 12th grade. That wasn't true for me. All of my teachers, except for maybe, like, five to seven of them, mm-hmm. all of them were black. Mm. So I was used to, like, my teachers loving me. Because we're all the same thing. Like, they know that these kids need somebody that looks like them. But because I was a private school that was Christian-based, and these teachers aren't certified, they just talk to kids anyway. They have favorites. They let you know they have favorites. Because mm. their favorites can get away with stuff that they're not favorites can't. So it's, like, it's very interesting. But it made me realize that I didn't want to be like that. The teachers that I had after the fact just showed me that you can be compassionate and love your students even though they're not for kids. Like, you mm-hmm. still have to care for them because you're with them 40 hours a week. Like, you're their parents away from home, even though people don't like to say that, but that's the case. Teachers are not babysitters. They are educators. They you watch your children, but they also educate them as well. Mhm, mhm. Absolutely, and I think that speaks to like the power that teachers truly have. Um, I know a lot of the times, even through the media, they they feel like as if they're at the lower end of the totem pole. Um, but teachers have so much impact and influence on students because of what you just said. They are uh, essentially a parent um, for eight out eight out of the twenty four hours of your day. And it's Monday through Friday. And it sucks when we have educators and teachers um, in general who allow their biases, their dispositions, or whatever beliefs they may have impact how they engage with students. And I feel like in my own experience, that dynamic really hampered or influenced what I thought of myself around education, similar to you. Um, I was I had an education within my school, but I also knew that when I was getting home, my mother was going to get on me about learning X, Y, Z. My father, once he got off of work, uh, it was a new lesson. So and then on top of that, I did have to go to Sunday school. So it was like you're going to be in school in some form of schooling Monday through or Sunday to Sunday. So um, 
I was a <laughs> lifelong learner for sure. And we're still lifelong learners, but in the sense of the word as a child, I really didn't um, expect that, but I'm grateful for it now where I am. But I say all that to say, um, because I didn't have that necessary support that I wanted um, during my K through 12 experience, especially in the schools that I attended, it really had me believing that I wasn't capable. Even though these teachers may not say, Paul, you are not going to amount to anything. You're not capable. But if they're not encouraging me, if I'm seeing my peers getting gold stars or getting 100s in every chance, like you mentioned, now you may see a teacher's favorite and they're praising them, they're putting them on this pedestal, but yet I can't even get recognition when I am making strides, even if it's a small stride, um, it impacts a child, especially for me, uh, where I was mm -hmm. battling self-confidence around um, a lack of self-confidence around my academic status. So I really wish, and I, I look back and back to question one and two now, that my educators would have just supported me a little bit more and even more so why I'm in the role that I'm in now and making sure that I support students no matter what level they may be at. Um, every win is a, a win to be celebrated, no matter if you are a high achiever or you're not. Mm-hmm. And to now add my input. So because children are younger and more malleable and are learning socialization rather than having been in it for like 5, 10, 20 years, they're far more perceptive and they pick up on that stuff. You know, you made a really good point, Paul, about how sometimes it wasn't what they said, but it might have been how they stood, you know, the facial expressions how they yes. leaned in versus leaned back when certain people spoke. Yes. And I can really think about how in my own journey, I, and this could be because I was a hard-headed kid, because I'll claim that. But I, I told myself early, these people cannot be in charge of my learning alone because they weren't equipped to be. You know, when I think about how I was being treated in relation to my peers, when I think about how my parents were talked to in relation to the conversations with other parents, I was like, these people from a very young age, even without the language, like, I don't feel like these people would be here. And it makes sense contextually because we know black students and other children of color, even when they have a teacher that is of their race, mm -hmm. do not always get that same input because society is still built on these certain ideas. So like a core example of that, I remember one of my teachers literally like pulled me to the side I was like, because of my tone, I need to be careful of the way I move and carry myself in the classroom because my peers would think I was aggressive. And I can't really remember the teacher's face or her name, but those words really stuck out to me mm. because the first thing that crossed my mind in that moment was, do you feel that way about me? Mm. And as we've already discussed, being a young child, especially a young black child, can already be tough. But don't we slap these other things into the mix like colorism, right, or mm -hmm. suffering from poverty? it can be really hard to be a black child in the classroom. And when you don't have a teacher that's perhaps alleviating that or encouraging your peers to not be vicious to you, that's a whole nother dimension to the learning process that's not even being contended with for the seven to eight hours you in the classroom. And who knows what these students' lives are like when they're outside of the classroom, when there really is nobody to be like, hey, y'all, stop being mean, stop doing this, stop doing that. Um, going off what Liebert said about how, you know, what society thinks influences how teachers act with different students in the classroom, depending 
Well, not even the clinic. Not it's not based off of what the future looks like, the future looks like any of that. I think that now that's starting to change because you know kids are learning online, and unless you already knew the kid from, you know, if you moved from teaching the grade before and now you're teaching their grade now, or you knew them from outside of the classroom before the kids born it's way easier for teachers to not put their biases on these students because I, my district, mm-hmm. our kids are not forced to have their cameras on. So if I don't know what you look like, <laughs> I can't be like, well, that one's going to be bad. No, this I can just teach the kids without biases. Granted, I wasn't going to do that anyway because I know how, you know, people do that to certain kids even when I was – you know, working as a camp counselor and stuff like that, all the quote-unquote bad kids, they all gravitated mm-hmm. to me. I always joke about it because my aunt's the same way. The bad kids tend to like me, but it's not because they're bad. It's simply because I actually listen to them, like mm-hmm. talk to them. And you treat them like they're human and not some sort of criminal in the classroom. So Absolutely. I think the one thing that really that's good that came from virtual learning is the fact that teachers who have biases when their students come into classroom without even the kids opening their mouth, they're no longer there simply because a lot of people are not forcing the kids to have their cameras on. Mm-hmm. Some school districts are, but they do that so you can eliminate anything before even talking to your kids. Like, it's it's so helpful because you know, well, this kid's just smart. That's all you have to say. Like this kid's just smart or this kid might need a little bit of extra help simply because they ask more questions and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It's not about what this kid looks like, well they look bad, so they're gonna be bad. Like, no, it's nothing of the sort like that. You just you're teaching. You don't have to worry about the student personality well you do the personality <laughs> there. So I can't even say that because my kids they blow up the chat and chat's always funny. But, <laughs> yes. but like you don't have to you're not, not making you you don't have any preconceived notions about your students before they say anything to you simply because you don't see them. Mm. All you're seeing is that there's a person behind this camera and they either want to do the work or they don't. There's no in between. Mhm, mhm, and I think that point beautifully touches on the fact that bias is so rampant that we have to plan around it in the most drastic of ways to diminish it. Because think about what we're saying when we say, in order for teachers to genuinely treat every student equally, they literally have to see none of them. Mm. And it really hurts to sit in that space. And I see all of us are reacting, so I'm sure y'all went away in after me. But so many teachers come to mind when I think about my treatment. And especially as a quote-unquote smart but bad student, I think about all them little teacher reviews. It's like, good in class, but does this. Good in class, but does that. And then when you ask them to, like, better explain it or better elaborate, they're just like, oh, well. He talked to other kids, and it's like, kids are social. They should talk. Or it's like, well, sometimes he can be off, off task, 
So then if I'm off task, how am I getting all my work done? Am I off task or have I finished the task and now I need something else to do? Mm. And as a student who does tutor like now as an adult and did in the past, if I'm assisting you with your work, shouldn't that be a leadership skill to foster and develop rather than telling me, nope, sit there in silence until <laughs> everybody else is done? But that to me speaks to a power dynamic that teachers or educators and anyone within the institution may want to hold on to because if a student is um, being challenged, if you in that scenario, you are able to do your work and you need new things to do, but they want you to follow it their way. That speaks to them wanting to do it their way more so than adapting to be successful or meeting a student where they, a specific student and treating each student as an individual case more so than a broad stroke for everyone. Because what works for Lieber may not mm -hmm. work for, for Paul, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't, I should silence or, or smother what um, Liebert is doing because it's not what the group or the collective is doing. Mm -hmm. That that whole statement reminds me of, um, what's his name? Greer, his, the book Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Yes. It just reminds me about how feel. they okay. talk about how a lot of times education is teacher-centered and not student-centered. Students mm -hmm. are, he calls it the banking method. Kids are thought of as an empty bank and you just build them up and so they can't be filled anymore, but kids can't really learn if they're just a passive participant in their education. So when the teacher feels like the classroom is all about them, when is the kid really going to learn? Like, right. I I make it my business for my kids to actually interact, me and my co-teacher as well. Like, we have that first part of the class where we're like, okay, we're going to go through all the information, but you have the opportunity to ask questions. Like, you have the opportunity to talk to us about what you're learning. You stop frequently and we're like, okay, well, so does everybody understand that? Do you have questions, comments, concerns, anything just to clear it up or just let you know that you're not just there to sit and get information from me. You're here to actually learn. And learning is not just sitting and listening. It's actually participating in mm -hmm. what you're doing in the classroom with your teacher. Mm -hmm. Please, I have please. one more thought. Please. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I'm thinking now since you said the point on the power dynamic. Because mm -hmm. as adults, and you know, I know we've joked about this a good bit. There's an obsession with you know, like putting people on. Like there's a legitimately a culture of that. And I'm now thinking about how in education, there's an obsession with treating students like blank slates and not people. Right. You know, there's not really much development and fostering of who they could be. It's instead trying to see how well can I teach them this subject as if mm -hmm. subjects aren't transferable. <laughs> and to talk about psychology, which touches on all disciplines, the point is not to be a master of all. The point is to know this is important. There are people doing this work. Let me go reach out to these people rather than me saying, I'm going to just teach myself everything. Because why would you want to shrink your community and not network, you know? Why would you not want to pull upon the other experts? Because even experts in the field agree and disagree with each other. Very much so. That reminds me how in one of my grad courses, we were watching a video, and it was just talking about how, like, the education system as a whole is, 
it's not even based on kids learning. It's based on kids knowing enough to get a job. And mm-hmm. that was yes. good for back then when that was the only goal. Times have changed. Education has changed. So it's just so interesting how education in itself moves forward, but the policies that are here to support it, they don't simply because of who's currently in charge. Now, I want to add a point. <laughs> y- y'all just keep talking bombs. <laughs> but let me just say, um, the f- you're absolutely right. And it makes me look at the comparison between an independent school and a public school and what those institutions are training our students to become. So when you said that we're, we're used to be just acceptable um, just to get a job, right? I feel like a lot of our public schools are still in that that shift sometimes. They're, yes, they're trying to shift towards supporting students' purpose, supporting students' creativity and things of that nature. However, I still see a large segment of public schools and students within these these school systems just being encouraged to make it by, just to get by. Mm-hmm. Um, when I see my little cousins, when I see my little brother who is content with getting a high school diploma, which is fine because if that's what you want, however, you're capping yourself and not thinking about what you can do even further even if you want to become an artist, even if you want to become just a, a, constr- a construction worker or a contractor, what more, how can I enhance that maybe lower level of, of goal or uh, potential occupation or career? And how can I pr- make that, enhance that even further? Maybe getting an architectural degree, maybe going to college, going to trade school. But uh, I want to tie that back to the point about comparison of public and independent. When you see independent schools and their their focus on college and college and career readiness when you see the focus on pouring in resources in specific areas of needs for their students and you see the contrast with public schools when they're just doing things to make it afloat you see why we have certain students who have a mentality who have that mindset that i want to be more than versus those who are just content and i think if we can create that universal system where we have our leaders Obviously, we everyone needs to be in a certain role. Everyone has their lane. But if I, if in my opinion, I feel like we can push everyone to go beyond what they perceive their lane to be. You can be the greatest mechanic you can be. Don't just settle for being a mechanic. And I feel like independent schools do a, a, a better job at supporting students' purposes than a public or a charter school would, depending on their focus. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, and we can move along now, Paul. I apologize for bringing us back. But no, this no. is a good thing about good conversations. Sure. The thoughts build upon themselves. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, and as we've already discussed, we talked about all these changes already, some changes that we noticed um, throughout our educational journeys. But let's just dive in just a little bit deeper on what are some of the things that you noticed when you were younger that are obviously different um, now that you are in graduate school? Um, around your education, around access to it, whether it's um, just your education as a whole? Um, For me, I noticed, and I don't even think it was when I got to college. It was Mm -hmm. when I got to high school. I noticed Mm -hmm. that there was more space for me to genuinely be active in my education. And that was a shock for me. Like, I genuinely struggled with that because, I was used to, well, you go to class and 
your teacher for agencies, you can take this information for a test, and then you have to somehow keep it memorized to regurgitate it again for a standardized test mm-hmm. school year. Yeah. So that was like, I was flying through because I was smart and everything was easy. But when I got to high school, I got into the IB program and because of that, I the the way the program is set up, it's forcing students to genuinely be active in their education. There's no more you just sit and learn. It Mm-mm. you're doing things to learn, and that was such a shocker to me to the point where I was not doing good in school. Like my first report card in high school was not what my grades were looking like from preschool to eighth grade. <laughs> like. I was an AB student. If I had to see, it was never on a report card. Like, it was on the test. That was it. And it was probably in history because history was never my strong But when I got to high school and it wasn't a game of remembering enough so you can pass the test, mm-hmm. it was so hard for me to grasp how to learn that way because I was like, you telling me I can like think freely and be in your classroom and you're telling me information but we're doing this as a partnership and not you're the teacher so you're the boss. Mm-hmm. That was so crazy to me because any other like environment where I was being poured into and there was like a back and forth pouring into and gaming situation, it was not in a educational classroom. It was a cheerleading coach, a dance instructor. Mm. Even though some of my cheerleading coaches were my teachers, mm-hmm. I was still only learning like life mm. from them. I wasn't learning education in a way where I was able to actively participate and learn in the way that I know I had to learn and Ooh. not the way that's a blanket a blanket way to learn like no student learns the same and I learned that for myself by the time I got to high school which was so crazy to me because even now I see how as a teacher I see that because we're phasing into more younger teachers that's happening more often like teachers actually want to have a safe space for their students to learn Instead of just being like, I'm going to send at the board, you write the notes, and that's what it's going to Even, like, some of the older teachers that I work with, they don't even teach like that anymore because they're like, we have to move with the way that kids are moving. Because if I don't keep it interesting, they're going to get on that phone. They're going <laughs> to put them headphones on, pull the hoodie up so you can't see the headphones and be on TikTok. Like, <laughs> that's what they're going to do. <laughs> So it's crazy how, like, education is taming so students can be more interactive. Because it's even funnier in my classroom, like, we're virtual. Mm-hmm. And the way my class goes is we watch the videos where we go through a PowerPoint if you have one. And then you do work for the rest of the class period. But my kids, they will, like, they act like their ears are bleeding when mm. we play, like, our corny videos. But then they take that quiz and they like, wait. I actually understand it. Yeah, because you're looking at this video, and you're like, this is mm-hmm. catchy. It's so corny, but it's catchy. 
because even my friends were trying to watch the video to find <laughs> This is corny. Like, I wouldn't even watch this on my own time. But it worked because I'd be singing it, like, after teaching it for four different class periods <laughs> and listening to the same video. I'd be like, dang, that's stuck in my head. So I know it's stuck in there. So, like, technology is even changing education in the sense that kids are more interested in how they're learning because I know that even though I like school, I hated being in the classroom. Like, I used to tell my mom, I hate school. And I didn't realize that I got older that it wasn't me hating school. It was I loved learning, but I hated my school environment because it's, I'm just sitting in the classroom and mm-hmm. learning based off what's on the board. I didn't love learning until I got to high school and the seven teachers I had, like, I had one teacher who, like, he made math so fun. Like, mm. I never knew math has always been my favorite subject because I was like, numbers don't change. History, <laughs> and they don't, don't lie. Change. Um, mm-hmm. Reading, you just got to read all the time. Like, science, I kind of like science, but I was just like, ugh. Sometimes it's just too much memorization, which is crazy because I'm a science teacher. But mm-hmm. math, I was like, nothing about math changes. You're going to go across the water. You're going to be in Africa or Europe or somewhere different. Mm-hmm. And the numbers don't still be the same. They might have a different sign because of how money changes. But math is always going to be the same. I love math. But I was like, math class can get so boring. This man changed the game. Like, we were singing songs to memorize certain concepts. Like, I still remember songs to this day. We were <laughs> playing we were playing different games. Like, he would have us, when we're finally getting the hang of whatever the concept was, he would have us playing, like, speed rounds on teams, and we would run up to the board to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you're excited because you want to win. Mm-hmm. Or... My favorite was, who hates that we tell the story about him, but he used to, I don't even remember what we were talking about, but it just caught our attention because everybody knows when you get to his class and you get to the certain concept, he's going to sing Purple Rain and crawl across the set. <laughs> and it's just going to be entertaining because, like, who else is going to do that but him? So, like, that that's kind of what helped me realize, like, education can be fun if you do it right, but I had to learn that as I got older and got into spaces where the teachers really wanted to teach. Like, a lot of teachers want to teach, but some just want to do it because, you know, it's easy. But others, they really want to teach, and they want to do it because they're passionate about it, not because, oh, I get three months off in the summer and I get off every break that my kids have, except for the ones where I have professional development. Like, there are teachers like that, but the teachers who aren't, you'll always say. Mm-hmm. Well said, mm-hmm. well said. And I just want to, again, it's like every time you talk, it's just like, dang, I wanted to say that. That's exactly what I'm thinking. This, man, this is a great <laughs> educator. Um, but not to reiterate the point about technology, but on the other side of that, um, I first and foremost, I love that teachers and educators can 
um, meet and, and adapt to the times, right? One of my professors in graduate school, of all places, made us use Twitter. We had to tweet about class. We had to tweet about concepts. I can think back to those Jeopardy games, those uh, <laughs> apples to apples. Uh, there's so many different ways that I, I appreciated my my educators and my teachers to use technology to make me grasp it because I wasn't able to grasp it just sitting and looking at a board all the time. So I, I definitely, uh, when you when you mentioned that, um, it definitely resonated with me. How, but the point that I wanted to make about technology um, on the other side of that was the fact of around accessibility and also accountability where I know, and again, this may show my age, but when I was in um, K through 12, it was all by phone or mail or a letter you would get, right? So there was times when I was struggling in school, my parents had no idea. And then me being a child, whether it was fear or not even able to comprehend what these uh, teachers or what my counselor is saying to me, I'm not relaying those messages. They may get lost in translation. But now we're, and I see how parents on the other side, being a counselor um, and interacting with students, how parents are so involved, no matter where they are, whether they are a helicopter, quote unquote, parent, or they're a parent that's super involved in, in their student's education, or they're just uh, sending their student to, to school um, while they go work and handle what they have to handle. The, the way that teachers have access to parents and vice versa is amazing now. An email, a text. There was times in my as a counselor at a, at a school here in Connecticut, I literally had uh, parents cell phone numbers that I can reach out to where when I was growing up that was never I was hiding my cell phone my parents was not trying to give um, their cell phone numbers um, and again cell phones look different that back then but needless to say um, they didn't give all that information out outside of emergency and that's typically when it came to my health more so than my education um, so the way that technology has really jump-started or of provided space for everyone to be active, actively participating in a student's uh, education um, is so true. Um, and I'm glad that you were able to, to mention that, Kamara. That's actually funny because I think technology is so great. Yeah. But mm -hmm. when it comes to accessibility, I yep. see two different sides of it. Sure. So because I currently work at Title I school, I see where there are some parents who just don't have it and they don't understand it. Right. But then I see some parents who they just don't use it to their advantage. Like, right. I, my kids, to see their grades, you can just log on and use it. Some parents do not care. No. Some parents will be like, well, I'll see when they get their report card. <laughs> but once they get their report card and they see that their kids failing and we've been trying to contact them, about that, they're just like, why y'all ain't never tell me? Be like, well, <laughs> that was my mother. If you want to know, you can pull up the whole thing and be like, well, we contact you on this day. And you got the receipts. And <laughs> you was just like, okay, I'll let them know, but your kids still fail. Right. Um, but even like the texting, my mom didn't do that with my teachers. Like, mm -hmm. I was in high school five years ago, but my mom was not texting my teachers um in elementary school middle school my mom wasn't texting the teacher if they had mm -hmm. to contact my mama they had to call her right. they were not emailing her unless right. they absolutely had to now my parents i'd be like well my parents be like well can you just text me and i'd be like yes <laughs> because it's so much easier <laughs> like, mm -hmm. um i have a 
are helicopter parents. Mm-hmm. I have some that are super involved. Um, I have one parent who emailed me and she was like, I hope I'm not that parent for you. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's tell you. <laughs> but, now that you mention it. Um, <laughs> it's so funny to me because no matter the type of parent, they're all the They'd be like, well, if this person don't show up to class, text me and let me know. Mm-hmm. Um, my kids hate that because I remember uh, the other week, one of my kids, I texted their mom. And I was like, well, you know, if you need to use your phone to, like, see the screen, go ahead and use it. She said, well, you texted my mom and said I wasn't in class, so I don't have my phone. I said, well, I was in class. You should have been in class, right. I don't know what to tell you. Like, your mom told me, if you're not there, what I do, you won't there. So, and that's, I just got to tell you what it is. Right. But it's so mm-hmm. crazy because my parents would just be like, oh, text me. So I, they don't have my room. No. <laughs> my work number, like, I have, it's crazy. Like, I have the parents' names saved in parentheses. I have what kid that parent belongs to. And in the little, you know how, like, on certain phones, you can put, like, what's the company? I just put mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. the school and then put parent beside it because I need to know what I'm talking to. But it's so crazy because my mama won't text me teachers. I mean, for my little brother, she came because he's still like, he's in middle school. So mm-hmm. she, she's seen both ends of what it's like. But Roma never texted teachers when it came to me. Well, half the time when I text parents, it's not for good things. But if it says, you know, that's just quicker. I'll call them if there's something good or email them. But my mom was like, I don't got to worry about this. If they need me, they'll call me. Right. But half the time, they were calling because I'm, I'm in somebody's nurse office because I'm going to fall out because exactly. I can't breathe. Like, mm-hmm. it wasn't because, oh, she did this other day. No, she's in the nurse office and she don't put me hungry her. Like, that's what it was. It was never... She's not doing good in school. She didn't have a good day today. No, it was always some good, but she might be sick. Come get her. Sister might pick her up. Right. It was never, I need you to log her on real quick. I need you to make sure she's doing this. Nope. But that, that technology part is so crazy to me. Like, mm-hmm. me just getting on my phone and texting, like, my principal walking by, not being pressed that I'm texting on my phone because I might be talking to a parent. It's crazy. It's mind blowing because I'll I'll now talk about mine, uh, my experience. I mean, because I remember in high school, towards like sophomore or junior year, when they were deciding to make tech like okay in the hallways, because originally you couldn't have it out at all. Like, dang, like this was crazy. It was a point in time when y'all have a fit. Yeah, like you know, the phone drop out your pocket accidentally. It's a whole episode. Yep. But <laughs> it was cool to see the integration because, like we know, it's really important that when we develop those skills and we see that they're an asset. Because, like, if I don't know something, why not use the computer in my pocket to Google it and look it up? And that leads into the biggest change I noticed in schooling, which was, like you said, Kamari, that bigger ability to actively engage in my learning process. And that wasn't always fun for my teachers at the time because they admittedly would be like, can't we just read? Like, do you have to add thoughts? But I'm like, no, like, we have to add thoughts. And especially during my high school experience where there weren't many students that looked like us in my honors classes, 
I was like, nah, like I can't just let y'all have this lazy conversation. Like I'm not here, especially since teachers admittedly will be like, Hey, you know, like you're one of the only black students in the room. What's your thoughts? And that can be traumatizing for others. But for me, I was like, oh, it's cool, because I was going to volunteer my thoughts anyway. But since you gave me the floor, I'm about to show y'all something. <laughs> Oddly enough, I didn't have that experience. I think it's just because the, the city I was from is really black. Like, I'm from Virginia, where it's meant to be exactly, you know, the capital of the South, all that crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. I went to the public school system there. Majority of the kids in that public school system, black mm. or some other minority. The biggest two are they're either black or Latin. There's no real in between. But my classroom is so crazy here when people are like, well, I was school one of few or the only one in classes where that was never the case for me. It was always the flip. Like, we were always the majority, or if it wasn't the majority. It might have been half and half or like three-fourths and a quarter, but it was never, I felt like I was the only one and we were alone. Like, mm-hmm. um, I actually had a teacher where I was just like, we would be like, you're wrong. <laughs> um, And she was one of us. And we would be like, I don't know what she's talking about, but that don't make sense. Can we like rehash that out? Because you might not, you may not think you saying something crazy, but you are. Um, but also speaking to the point of when you're like, oh, cell phones would be seen as something crazy in the class. And like, oh, you're such a bad kid if you have your phone. It's, that just made me think about the fact of we, our age range, grew up in the transition of technology. Like, mm-hmm. if from, I want to say, 25 to kind of like maybe 21 right now. They're still kind of empty because some of them still didn't really go through that depending on where they grew up. But we got to see both ends. We know what a floppy disk is because we have music (laughs) in elementary school (laughs) and theater class. (laughs) And we also know that we also know what a TikTok is. Like, it's not just the sound that the clock makes. So, so crazy seeing that because I even noticed it in one of my classes last semester, everybody's older than me. Like in my program, I think I might have been the youngest person in my class at that time. I'm not too sure about my classes this semester. But last semester, that one class we were talking and they were like, yeah, by the time, you know, No Child Left Behind came around, I was graduated. I said, No Child Left Behind came out the year before I started school. Like, mm-hmm. you're saying you graduated. I was just getting there. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't... Seeing how, like, we are able to live through all of these changes in education is so crazy to me because we have, like, a unique experience that not many people get because, like, yeah, kids who come after us still see, like, other changes in technology, but we get to see the change in technology as a no-no to please use technology for the love of God. Like, we we get to see that change, and it, it, the experience is so different 
because even when I'm talking to my students, I'm like, ooh, y'all make me feel a little old <laughs> because you don't know what that is. Or some might just because, like, kids are curious and they go on Google and they be like, what did you do in this era? Or something like that. But, like, I feel old even though I'm not that old because the kids, like, everything's moving so fast for them where I'm like, we were going to roll medium pace, and I knew what it was like to the only computer you had in the house was the desktop that everybody mm-hmm. needs. You had to plug it in, mm-hmm. you had to unplug the phone, and that's the only way you could get on the internet because oh, if well. it wasn't plugged in, right. you was only playing one of the two games that were on the computer. Well, don't forget um, the third one that you downloaded without permission, but that you hide yeah. from nobody. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Um, so like now we have technology at our hand because I was talking to um, my best friend the other day. We were sitting in the house just talking, and we were talking about how like we've been in class with older classmates, and they don't know how to do a PowerPoint. Like mm. they just toss all the information on there, and I'm like, how how do you not know how to do that? But I have to remember that like when Microsoft Office Suite when I was starting to get popular and fleshed out, like seriously fleshed out, we just had the experience of just like playing around on it. Like before I had to officially start making PowerPoints for school, I would just play around with it and make something crazy just because I can. And that's like the transition of technology to, like the transition of technology with education is just so crazy to see because I've actively lived through every single part of that even though I'm not that old like it makes me feel old but I'm not old I'm not you're not old (laughs) (laughs) all them small things like hooked on phonics reading rainbow and like even Elmo and Sesame Street really were ahead of the curve because they realized like you said with access that yo this stuff can really make a difference and that's why I get really irritated now. We can discuss in length later about how schooling has genuinely changed. Like now that we have more virtual assignments or tasks, schools already provide books, schools provide laptops. So now we're seeing schools clearly also need to supply Wi-Fi because how can they do any of that work without it? And many people still view it from a privileged and more specifically benefiting from capitalism point of view. They're like, who doesn't have Wi-Fi? And it's like a lot of people. A lot of people. (laughs) What's crazy though is that certain schools, even though like it's an accessibility thing, kids, if you gotta get a, if you have to get a laptop, they're gonna ask if you got Wi-Fi. Um, Especially now, kids get hotspots, and the crazier, even crazier thing is, I'm used to a hotspot just looking like a little box. It don't have nothing on it. My brother, they just gave all the kids a hotspot. My brother has one. They look like a cell phone. Mm. And I was like, so you just gave them phones? Like, what? <laughs> but even they know that, okay, these kids might have cell phones, but they don't have Wi-Fi to actually use the computer. They have buses. Like, they have buses that go to maybe not all, but most of the neighborhoods that their kids live in, especially the ones who really, really need it, the buses have Wi-Fi on it. And it stays there until they're done with all their classes for the day mm. and they get to do all of their 
whatever they need to get done for homework, um, all of that stuff to make sure they're successful in school. It has all that on there. And it has, like, food. So kids are not only being able to have their computer and laptop, they're being fed because we all know that some schools, well, at some schools, some of those kids, the only time they eat is when they're actually at school. So I Mm -hmm. think it's so crazy how, like, digital learning has made school systems reevaluate how they're making sure that students have access to things. And more specifically, the students, they allowed to slip through because it wasn't as obvious or they weren't as pushed to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. And this now is a good tie-in to our next question. Because now we want to discuss what has been challenging about the changes, right? So at this particular point in time of the pandemic, some schools are hybrid, some are in person, and some are still completely virtual. So now as an educator, as well as a learner, what have been some of the challenges that you've faced? So for me, I was even crazier. Okay. So before and during senior year, I was like, I'm not going to grad school right after. I feel burnt out. Sometimes I think I should have just listened to myself. But... Knowing knowing and seeing it is so crazy to me. So I'm in grad school, and that that isn't even what made me burst out. It's being online. Um, I think if I wasn't online during grad school, I would be perfectly fine. Um, But the burnout is really real because it's exhausting, and I've even noticed it for my kids, like, We've gotten to the point where me and my co-teacher are like, let's make it easy because they're not going to do it because they're tired. They don't want to look at the mm-hmm. computer. Um, in all of my classes, I have five kids that I can base how learning is going simply because those are like my more active and more eager to learn students. Not saying all of them aren't, but they're more comfortable with speaking and actively participating and just kind of want to be involved and not really too burnt out to just be like, I'm going to log in and that's it. Um, I've even noticed that those ones have started to burn out because mm-hmm. there's no separation between school, work, or home. Everything currently is at home unless you're being pushed back into your workplace or your place of schooling because currently there is no, we want to stay at home. It's more so, well, we said you're going back, so you going back. There is the back in person is not a willingly thing. It's, you're being told to do it and you have to do it because of personal reasons. Um, the separation, I did not realize that because of having the option of wanting to stay home and being like, when I'm home, my home life is just personal time to do what I need to do. If I got to do homework, I get it done. But when I go home, it's me time. And when I go into a building, the class, that school, school, me is on. Not having that 
it's so easy to burn out. And noticing it in my kids makes it even worse because I feel bad because I got to put two grades in every week and that's my job. Like, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't. But I don't want to give you this work because I know you're not going to do it simply because you're tired and it's draining. And my least favorite thing to hear from other educators is, well, they don't have to do TikTok and all that. Why can't they sit on the computer? Or they scroll Instagram all day. Why don't they want to sit on the computer? And, like, when it comes to certain things, I'm like, okay, I understand. Because if you can do a TikTok, you can make PowerPoint. There's no there's no big difference from that. Like, mm-hmm. y'all can do all these transitions and pull edits <laughs> from TikTok. That's a PowerPoint. Like, <laughs> it's the same thing. But aimlessly scrolling Instagram and TikTok, and all these other social media apps, it's nothing like doing work. Like, your passive is doing You don't have to activate your mind. The page is reloading. You You not even reading half the stuff. So you don't have to think about it. Whereas looking at a computer and being forced to think, you're activating a part of your brain that you don't want to activate all day. And it's hard to do that when you're forced to sit in front of a computer and do it. So... I, the whole digital learning and all of that, it's really just taught me to be graceful, but not too graceful because some kids will still take advantage of that. But it's it's hard to see it because you don't want to like overwhelm kids, but at the end of the day, you still have a job to do. And on the other side of that, because I experienced both ends, like I tell my kids all the time that, I understand, like, I'm still in school now with you, but also when the pandemic hit, I was at school, like, so I know what it feels like to essentially be kicked out of school without being kicked out of school, like, um, when the first, when the pandemic first hit, because for us, that was like, Around spring break last school year, it's actually been a year exactly. Which is so I think it was like crazy. March specifically because yes. I was definitely yeah. on my spring break too. So yes. March fourteenth. Actually, it was a year exactly. So my my best friend, her birthday is March first, mm. and when the pandemic hit, her we celebrated her birthday the weekend before because spring break was coming that next week. So we're like, we're going to celebrate the weekend before spring break. We're going to have fun. Spring break, we're getting sent home. So, like, that was so crazy to me because I was like, it was an an abrupt stop to my school year. And some experiences I never got to experience because of something I couldn't control. And teachers still wanted to move as normal. And there's no more normal. Like, you want me to wake up for a 9 a.m. class, talk about physics, and I'm sitting in my house. Check I don't want to do that. Like, right. <laughs> I didn't, that's just something I didn't want to do simply because I'm home. Like, you separate home and school. Um, and it was just so crazy to me. I had some teachers who was just like, like, I had a physics lab three hours. She said, we're not doing that. Like, we would log on for 10 minutes, and I thought teachers like that were, like, my saving grace because 
you understand. But some of them were just like, well, we're going to move as normal. And I think I hated that because so many teachers want to just continue as normal. And we can't do that because, for one, even if you're fully virtual now and you have to move back into the building, like I'll be doing soon, well, I wouldn't go to put my kids in back soon. You still have to teach virtually and in person because the kids are coming back. And it's like hard to do the two because you want to teach like a regular classroom, but you can't do that for the kids at home because they won't even get the full experience. So having teachers who just don't understand that process is really hard to like sit and watch it happen and to sit and experience it too. You really highlighted the way toxic positivity manifests and honestly derails what pe- what can be great moments to be vulnerable because once again, you know, you've lost for some students prom, you know, the end of the year parties, celebration type of events, graduation, you know, in our case, since we were on spring break relaxation, which really, really needed and important. And then when you get back, people's responses, let's just focus on work. Ooh. Who want to focus on work? You, you really think I have the same um, interest in this work right now with this moment? Because if you do, then you either haven't been listening to me throughout the entire school year that you've had me, because I'm always very candid about the importance of that disconnect. Mm-hmm. But also, don't you care about my full character and personality? Like, because COVID touched a lot of people immediately. You don't even want to ask if we've been affected by that and ask like if we need accommodations or if we need grace, like that was so shocking to me. But since we live in a more specifically mental health, but all health stigmatizing society, I had to remind myself, well, I guess that's on brand, which also hurt. Yeah. Um, For me, I think the biggest thing that like hurts to see, I guess, is the fact that, kids who, school is their safe haven, or school is the only time where they don't have to worry about being the oldest of however many, or not even the oldest, but like, you just have to help because you're older. They don't get to like, have their time where they're away. Like, I've had kids where they're like, well, I'll be right back. My mom's gonna ask me to do something. I'm like, okay, go ahead and do it. Like, they're not missing anything. You've gone over the lesson. You got the information, even if you haven't. But, like, I hate that in some school districts, I, I just don't like it. I don't like the camera on Because let's say you are a student who your mom just advocated for you so that you could go to a better school. Mm-hmm. And the kids that you go to school with, don't live the life you live. So camera on is different from you because this kid might have it all and they're nice. their house looks so nice to the point where you think they got a virtual background and then you have whatever household that you have where people think it's not virtually pleasing and good to the eye. And I hate that for kids because like that's another way to kind of make kids feel bad about themselves and kids like we were said earlier, are malleable and they 
when they are experiencing different things or feeling just less than because of the fact that they're at school and I don't have this, but this person got it because I'm looking in their background or the possibility of a group of people in your class having a group chat talking about the fact that if you don't have a background that looks like theirs and your auntie, uncle, whoever is walking back and forth through it because everybody's in the house. I don't like that because it it brings forth embarrassment for kids. Like, I like that districts have the, you don't have to have your camera on rule. Also, having your camera on is exhausting. Like, mm-hmm. um, in class, in my grad classes, they have a rule at the bottom of the syllabus that says you have to have your camera on. After an eight-hour workday, I don't want to have my camera on. Like, I'm going to have my camera off. I have my camera on all day unless I'm in a meeting because my my bosses understand that you, to actively participate, you don't need to have your camera on. You don't have to see somebody's face. They're there. I shouldn't have to be forced to have my camera on so you can see that I'm actively participating. I feel like you're trying to micromanage and have this power over the classroom when you should just be teaching. And that's it. Like, shouldn't have to have your camera on for this false sense of community because a lot of times people want to say that's what it is, but you just want to have some sort of control of what's still happening in your classroom when whether or not the kid has a camera on, the kid with a camera could still not be doing well simply because it's virtual school. Mm-hmm. Like, Absolutely. so I, that's one of those things about the pandemic that really, like, I really didn't like that. Um, every kid is different. All, I just think you shouldn't have to always have your camera on. Yep. You should, it should be an option. Like, I have one kid who she turns her camera on. Like, she turns her camera on in class, and I'm like, you don't have to, but she wants to. And I'm okay with that, but forcing kids to do that, that takes away them having another option in their home. Like, kids are at home, which leads me to the point of teachers still making it seem like you at school. You can't eat in the classroom because... We in class. You can't walk off and go to the bathroom because we in class. And I'm like, they at home. Like, if you got to go to the bathroom, just go. You don't have to ask me. You can tell me when you came back, like, oh, did I miss anything because I did have to step away for a second. That's cool. But you don't have to ask me if you got to go to the bathroom. You're a child. Like, there, that, like, sense of control that certain educators get from that, it, it really annoys to say the least. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Oh, my bad. I, I couldn't hear myself. I'll edit that out. <laughs> but um, needless to say, I think it, you're absolutely right. And and it's like the whole uh, attire, dress attire for when, you, when you're actually in person, right? I think the camera off is no different from who, what shoes you're wearing, um, what... What do you look like? And then how can I associate what you what you look like to where you are, like economically, social, socially, economically, and also um, just another way to, to your point, how to uh, add extra barriers, extra categorization of students when um, it's not necessarily necessary. 
Um, and I love when students now I wasn't one of the students who had to wear a uniform, but I see the importance because, again, there's no way for students. Well, students always find a way. They're children. They're growing and they're learning about the world. But it's less likely for a student to try to use the way you look um, to, against you when we're all dressed the same, uh, when everything is standardized. And to your point around the camera, I can't. You can't say my background is tacky or I don't have that right lighting. Um, Liebert, um, shout out to our last experience on camera. Um, but um, regardless of your lighting, regardless of what your environment may look like, it, none of that will matter if I'm getting the knowledge and the education that I came here for. My camera being on doesn't necessarily dictate whether or not I can't grasp that knowledge. But I love how we were talking about how not only um, – this impacts ourselves uh, physically, emotionally, but I also would love for us to discuss how, as we identify ourselves, how did this play a portion or how did um, this education, this new adaption to the way that we're learning um, influence or impact our identity? So my question specifically is, in what ways has your identity affected the ways, um, the way people have educated you? the way students and now adults also treat you. Has your identity played a part at all? For me, mm -hmm. I want to say that if it has, it never has been blatant. Um, like I said before, I went to a mostly black public school. All of my schools were mostly black kids that looked like me. Um, I did go to a school system where a lot of us didn't have much, um, including myself. Like, there were times, like, I was, I had things. I had nicer things, but I wasn't on the, you know, other end of the spectrum. But there were still times where I went without certain things just because of the kind of, just circumstance. Um, but I realized that because of the teachers I had, they didn't make us feel that way. Um, now that might also have a lot to do with the fact that I was in a good classes. So that might be the case, but even still, I didn't really see it in the other classrooms. Like I know my senior year, I stopped being a full IB student just because of how the program was set up. Mm -hmm. And I was in a regular class just for one of, well, no, not even one, two of my classes. And even then, I realized that the teachers didn't really teach, treat me different, except for one, because he was just like, well, I know you're going to do the work, so if you did it and you turned it in, I just gave you a good grade, whereas other students, he actually, like, fully, fully graded. Um, I don't think I genuinely had to, like, think about me and my identity in any way, shape, or form when it came to my education and how my teachers treated me because of how they just treated us like real normal people. Like, yes, people will get fussed at about things in the hallway, stuff like that, because that's school. Kids around each other, they play, stuff like that. And, and interactions happen, whether they're good or bad. So, you know, consequences come from that. But I never felt like my teachers were treating me less than because we had less than or because we were mostly minority students with less than. Um, I always felt like my teachers were giving me more. Um, 
they a lot of them made it a point to give us experiences that we couldn't get anywhere else simply because of the environment we came from. One of my teachers, my biology teacher to be exact in high school, he might be one of my favorite teachers actually. Mm. His thing, his niche was that he would make birthday biscuits. Like we and nobody else had that. But it was the fact that he would be like, Well, on your birthday, since his biscuits were like A one, I <laughs> never had a biscuit like it ever since. <laughs> but, <laughs> now I want but, <laughs> but he would make like a big black, you know, the Pyrex pen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if it was your birthday, you got a biscuit or just simply if he just made them, he would bring them to school and we would he would be like, Y'all can have some. Also might because we were his favorite a little bit. Um, <laughs> but our class, it was like we get a birthday biscuit, we talk about class, we do our work, we do a lab and we had experiences where we can do more hands on work. Um and I think it's just because our teachers cared. I don't think it had much to do with our identity. Um, I do know that part of it genuinely was probably because we were the smartest kids in school. I say that it's a word killer because smart is just not about the things you can do in education based off of how the education system is set up. Kids can be smart in different areas, but mm-hmm. academically we're considered the smart kids. So I think we got a little bit more freedom because of that, like, it was to the point where the regular kids, they couldn't skip class because they'd be like, oh, you just blacking off. We could be walking up the hallway in the middle of the class, no permission from a teacher, and security will be like, they're just going to do something in class. Like, we could have gotten away with murder in school simply because we're seen as possibly more well-behaved because we're in this academic hierarchy, which is crazy to me, but I see how my identity might have, like, impacted how I was learning, but I know that I really saw the how it impacted when I got to Spelman. Um, simply because Spelman, everybody has to take ADW when they first get, to the, get there, and I realized that being able to be in a space where everybody is a black person no matter where you come from you get to learn your history and you get to be uplifted whereas i see my friends who didn't really get that experience whether they went to school or not or they did they went to a maybe a predominantly black institution which isn't necessarily hbcu or they went to a pwi they didn't get that experience like their community and networking came from them really having to work or their major. We got community just by being at school. Like, you went to Spelman, all you got to tell somebody is, I went to Spelman, and you hear, oohs, ahs, I know somebody. Those are the first few phrases you hear <laughs> when you tell somebody you went to Spelman, you're going to Spelman, or you're already there. Like, that's what you hear. And I didn't realize that was going to be a big deal till I got there. I was just like, I want to go to the school. Um, but I think that changed how we were being educated because it was either 
we had teachers who really wanted to pour into us, or we had some teachers that would be like, well, y'all go to Spelman, so you should know this. And I think that, like, really grinds my gears when I hear teachers or professors say that because, okay, I go to the school that's prestigious, but I'm in the classroom. Like, I'm here to learn. Just because you think I should know it doesn't mean I do. Teach me. That's what we're here for. Teach me that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I think about how some of my teaching and some of my education was influenced by identity. I think about in the eighth grade when I had one of the few black teachers I had, his name was Mr. Geddes, and he was a dude that loved Star Wars. And it was the coolest thing ever for me because I love stuff like that too. But up until that point, and especially as, you know, the quote unquote smart black student, the teachers, the administrators, and even my peers were always very ready to tell me what I should or should not be like. And because I had a supportive environment behind me, I was able to sidestep some of the harsher parts of that. But it didn't change the fact that as a developing kid, right, we should be able to explore what we want to explore without shame. And he really helped me unlearn the shame of liking stuff because (laughs) it can be very hard to be a developing student and feel like, well, dang, every time I try to share what I like, people tell me what I should like. And I really kept that with me, you know, when I got to Morehouse and especially now that I'm in grad school and I do mentorship and I do other stuff because sometimes we forget how meaningful it can be to share yourself with others. You know, sometimes people incorrectly think representation is just having black folk in a space, Uh but representation to me is having black folk in the space who care about the space, feel supported in the space, and then want to add to it. And those three components, well, three-ish to four components, are really meaningful. Because as we've discussed in prior episodes and even here with intra-communal conversations, not all black folk, you know, not all skin folk is kin folk. And it can be equally detrimental for, you know, like the schools, the grad schools more specifically, and even the undergrad schools to say, oh, well, like we got people there to look like you. That's not enough like okay but you forget that might not have even been what I asked about because if my peers were the issue you putting more black folk in the room won't change the way my peers is acting <laughs> and that's just the beginning like it's so many layers and levels to it yeah when I I it's so crazy though because I think about that all the time um even down to like not just your full identity, your name. Like, mm-hmm. um, I have one of what I think is one of the most phonetic names ever. You cannot mess it up. All you have to do is just say it. When you say it, it, it sounds like how it's spelled. But so many people get it wrong. And I'm just like, well, why? Mm-hmm. Um, and when I'm talking to my kids, because, you know, a lot of black kids, have a unique name. Mm-hmm. And I recently, actually, um, because of where my school is located, they're not just, you know, your standard African-American child, which people would think of. I have kids who their parents, they're immigrant kids, like they're first-generation immigrants, 
And recently, I had to do testing in person at school, and I didn't just have my kids. I had all eighth graders, like not just the kids on my eighth grade team, but kids who are on every other team. So I don't have them in my actual classroom, but I had one, and his name was Wachowski. And I was like, okay, you know, how do you pronounce your name when I first saw it on the list? Because I was like, I don't want to mess it up. How do you pronounce your name? He told me. I was like, okay, so if I don't remember, I might just call you by your last name because I don't want to mess it up. And when he came back up to me when they finished testing, because I had to have them sign the paper off to just say, oh, I finished testing or whatever, I was like, remind me how to pronounce your name. And he was like, well, this is how you say it, but you can call me his Americanized name. And I was like, no, I will call you by the name that your parents gave you because that's you, like, I don't like that. Um, I don't like that a lot of minority kids, especially kids who have traditionally ethnic names, have to minimize themselves so other people can feel comfortable comfortable with them in a space, especially a classroom, because I feel like that is the beginning of making a student uncomfortable. You don't even know how to say their name, so how are you going to actively teach them in the way they'll learn if you don't even want to say the name that they mama call them on a regular day. The name they mm-hmm. mama and daddy put on their birth certificate. You you don't even want to do that. So I think that that also plays like a huge role in their identity and their education because if you can't call a student by their name, will you really respect them in the room? And mm. respect is like a really big thing for me. I feel like as an educator, you have to have mutual respect between you and your students because your kids won't want to participate if you don't respect them and they know when you don't respect them. And it starts with their name. Um, I Because for me, the only people I allow to kind of get away with saying my name just a little bit wrong are somebody who the way that Kamari, that I on the end is pronounced, is not in their native tongue. Mm. That or somebody who calls their black family member because E is a uh, in their language. Because my granddaddy, he does not say Kamari, he says Kamara, and he's been saying it since I got here, simply <laughs> because that's how that's mm-hmm. how we speak in the South. Like, but. I know it's not you being disrespectful towards me. It's because the way you learned how to speak, that is not how you were taught how to say it or you learned how to say it over time. Because certain languages, once again, that E is not how you say I. Right. So mm-hmm. that's the only time I'll be like, okay, that's okay, because you still got the gist of my name. But I've been called Camry, Camry, mm. um, so many other things and I just I correct them and I'm like correct them every time because that's where the respect in the classroom begins every single time and I think it's unfair to this to expect an adult to expect a child to have to accommodate them when that is their role as an educator so you as you are, you've all, no, excuse me, as you both already mentioned, that can be detrimental to the, and stunt the development of a student and put, point them in a direction where they may not initially be gone, but now 
this one instance, this one event now changes their whole scope of how they may view themselves or how they may view their educational journey moving forward. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because we ended up answering the final question before we asked it. So, oh, and I'll say it for you all listeners. The question was, how has your coursework and your experiences post, you know, lower school changed the way that you educate and teach? So instead, we'll pull upon the panel Paul and I just did and make the new question. What are some recommendations or suggestions you would make to educators? And I say the term educators rather than teachers because we're all educators at any given time, right? About our lived experiences, about our identity, about even our opinions. So I think it's important for us to all lock into this part of the process. And of course, listen to these wonderful answers. Um, let me think. A lot of stuff <laughs> came in at once. So first, <laughs> first and foremost, because I never thought about this before I, I was deciding to go into education, but my mentor, she brought it up to me, and I never thought of it as being a big deal. Know the kind of kids you want to be. Yeah. Because then that will lead you the rest of the way. If you know that you want to work with kids who grew up in situations like you did, then do it because you have the passion for it. Or if you want a quote-unquote easier job because, for example, I said that I want to work with inner-city minority students or just minority students in general who come from similar backgrounds as me. So whether it be low income or you're kind of in between like middle class and low income, I wanted to work with them because I understood like I, I was there with you kind of in a sense. Um, but I know that for some people, because of the baggage that comes with that, because you don't only have to deal with what's in the classroom, you have to deal with what's on their outside because what's on the outside affects them the most in the classroom. You have to be able to deal with that. So I know a lot of people don't do it because they don't want to burn out. And, okay, yeah. So, because that just made me think of PSA. That just mm. made my... <laughs> you you already know where um, I stand on that. <laughs> you know yeah, TSA listeners, she's trying to help. We hope y'all are going to take this as an opportunity to be accountable. Yeah, so like, that's like my biggest, because of that, that's my biggest critique of TFA because they don't give you a true option of the type of kid you want to be. Oh, I'm trying to find like the words to say it. Um, don't worry, we always bring our guests back. So if you want to yes. revive your thoughts or revisit, we will have you. Um, <laughs> The best way I want to say it is they drop you in schools that need help. Not schools that want educators, but they drop you in schools that need a teacher to fill a spot. Not because they really want you to genuinely educate students. And you don't have a Correct. choice in that because I remember being at um, the AC Career Fair and talking to one of my peers who has been doing CFA for internships. And he was like, the only time you really get your choice city and 
location is you have a real reason as to why you want to do it. So if you just last minute see TSA and think, oh, I kind of want to do that, you don't get an option in where you go. You got to follow where the money is going. So Mm -hmm. if the money is sending you to a neighborhood where it's really, really bad, that's where you're going. And you don't have a choice in that. And teachers who start education through TSA instead of going the traditional route of just choosing what school you want to go to and starting the process of being certified, they burn out quicker at TSA other than going that traditional route because you don't have the option. You have to work a little harder to kind of reach your students unless you already knew that's kind of what you wanted to do. So Mm -hmm. that's like one of my critiques of TSA. The other ones might be a little too controversial because I know some (laughs) people with TSA, they're like, I just did it. I'm holding my tongue. Because I like kids. But my other critiques are, they're a little, uh, (laughs) but but that's like my biggest thing when people say they want to go on education and thinking about how identity plays a role in that, but also knowing who you are as a teacher. Um, Mm -hmm. Because you can just say, I want to work in a classroom where kids look like me. What does that mean? Um, Mm -hmm. Because look like you doesn't just mean skin tone. It could be you have a kid who's a black kid who loves alternative music and different stuff like that. Or you have a kid who loves the fine art and it shows. So, like, knowing who you are as a teacher helps with that. I also think that this is kind of a critique of non-minorities. I don't like when educators who don't look mm-hmm. like students in any way, shape, or form go into a classroom with students who don't look like them. Um, this is not all of them. This is just a good portion of them because as an educator and a student, I've experienced that where they don't care. they just there for a check. Um, that's the nicest way to say it mm-hmm. because a lot of times it feels like savior when they go into those classrooms. And mm-hmm. I feel like knowing what kind of person you are before you step into the classroom helps when you're teaching certain kids. Because if you are Sally Sue who came from mommy and daddy who just hand me money and you want to go work in what we call the hood but you've never stepped inside there beforehand I'm assuming you have saved or not but because mm-hmm. you can save these kids because their environment looks bad to you and you've never been there. Um, which really hurts me because in the end that's going to hurt the kids and not you. Um, so I just think when you're thinking about identity, you should always think about how you're going to impact your students because of who you are, especially if you're not aware. Um, for example, over the summer when the whole with all the protests and stuff were going on, I didn't realize how detached some people really were from that because I, I've never been detached from it because I'm black. I understand what these things are. And I had a, I will say, I had a phase when I was like super, super woke and had no like 
to understanding of everything, like just knowing information but not understanding how to apply the information and just think critically about it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I understand where some people are on both spectrums, but seeing how all of that stuff plays out and how some educators are still numb to it hurts me because especially in cities like Atlanta or surrounding counties around Atlanta, there are so many teachers who will act as if none of that happened and they're teaching the baby where it's directly affecting them. And I don't like that. I never have. Um, And I never will because you have to also check your privilege when you go into a classroom where kids don't have that, whether it be privilege because of your skin tone, privilege because of your sexual identity, privilege because of your income, your social economic status. You have to check that at the door because if you don't, you won't understand what those kids go through on the day. Um, also, noting that you have privilege because a lot of black people don't understand that you still have privilege even though you're black. Like, privilege isn't just, oh, I'm black, so I don't have privilege. No, if you are black and you are able to have some sort of higher education, you have privilege over somebody. And understanding that you have privilege just because of that and you're going into a space with kids who may have not seen that, I feel like you're an amazing educator because you understand that I have to relate to my students in a way that they can be related to simply because I have some sort of privilege over them. And without checking that privilege, I could easily become the oppressor to them in a place that's supposed to be their big space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, Paul, you want to follow up or you want me to? Yeah, I'll jump right in on there. Oh, man, Kamari, so much, uh, so many keys right now, so many gems. Thank you for that, um, first and foremost. But to add on to what you've already uh, outlined, I would, I would say having educators really immerse themselves in their profession. And no matter what you look like, no matter what your background is, there's learning to do in all of our fields. Um, and especially when it comes to diversity, inclusion, and um, students of color. Um, as the world evolves, so does our classrooms, and our classrooms are becoming more and more diverse. So for my, I was about to say for my counselors, but for my educators who are um, looking to go in these classrooms, know what you're signing up for, right? Um, although you may have this dream and passion to become an educator, know what type of to your point again, what type of student you want to work with, but also knowing this types of students you will be working with wherever you're applying. So yeah, you can be a great counselor, you can be a great educator. However, if you are in a space where you are unfamiliar, you cannot just hope and believe that whatever I learned in school will apply to this situation and I can just survive 10 years in this career because of it. No, you have to adapt. You have to be willing to meet your students where you are and be willing to say when you're wrong. I think one of our biggest, and just with people in general, uh, one of our biggest burdens or flaws is our pride. And I know in the experiences that I've had, I've seen um, educating 
educators who are in training, who a lot of the times just rely on the fact that I learned this in school and because I learned it in school, it can be applied in whatever scenario I wanted to. And although it may work for certain people because of whatever privilege they may have, um, the reality is that it's not applicable for all situations. So be mindful and be ready to change and adapt and to modify. Um, something to add even further is just to be more curious um, instead of furious with your students. I know a lot of my experiences um, in K through 12 was around just how I was more fearful of getting in trouble, right? Fearful of my teacher blacking or, or when, I, when I mean by blacking, meaning just like, spazzing or saying you're wrong for xyz and just making it a scene more so of why paul why did you do it that way um so i think when we come from a space of curiosity when we come from a strength space or a student um focus space um and in addition a solution focused based uh perspective for students i think they're not only more willing to be engaged but they are willing to bring down that that barrier bring down that shield that they may be uh, projecting because um, they're going into a situation where they may not feel comfortable or a school may be that place where they feel like they have to always be in defense mode when um, it comes to their academics. So when you're asking students why more so than you did this and now I have to uh, act on anger or act on uh, whatever negative feeling or whatever feeling I may have towards you, but it's not curiosity, I think, we hinder our students' um, potential. Um, so I would encourage all educators to be more curious and not furious, and also really make sure that you immerse yourselves in your communities, immerse yourself in your profession, whatever profession that may be, specifically for educators though. Liebert? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so now my point is going to reiterate what you know you love to say, Paul, which is that we're lifelong learners, mm -hmm. and to make sure you act like it. Yes. And more specifically, seek the learning when it's hard, not just when it's easy. And I'm going to push back on something you said a little bit, Kamari, because I don't like the term privilege. I instead tell people, ask yourself what you're benefiting from. Mm. Because when we phrase it as privilege, people think it just happened and it's something that can just be unlearned and not a systemic, institutional, cultural thing. And a lot of times we do tend to think, oh, well, you know, I face oppression in this way, so this is where I'm at with it, as if there are other components and other facets to it. And, you know, having the privilege of attending an HBCU where there was just so much more access to this literature, we got to sit down and have these, again, intercommunal conversations about, you know, massage noir, right? right. And then about the homophobia and the transphobia and the classism and the colorism. So we were equipped, and if we weren't equipped, it's typically because there were other factors at play. But let's assume we all were equipped, right? If we got to learn about that stuff, we now know that as we move forward, we have to act like it. And we have to urge others around us to do it also. Because what does tend to happen, to your point about being a savior, people say, oh, all these other folk are bad, but me, I'm the good one. And it's like, that's not enough. Because you letting your peer crack about people and make jokes on people and you saying up oh, can't control anybody else but then you still have a coffee with them mm. still joking with them and your students see that so do you really think they can view you as an asset when they see you engaging with and joking with folk who actively you know disrespect and mistreat them 
how can they expect you to advocate for them when they ask you when you're not even ahead of it when you see it happening? Because back to that social learning, not everything is just as simple as talking to the person. When you see people not associating in healthy ways in relation to you, it often doesn't matter how they treat you because there's always a thought in the back of our mind of, of either that's an act or this is an act. Mm. But kids are just like, I don't even care about none of that. I'm cool on you. Like I'll lean back. And then it's the, well, I'm such a nice teacher. Why don't they like me? And it's like, because you hang with people that dislike them and you haven't shown the students that you like them by again, speaking up for them. And, uh, <laughs> no, go ahead. Another thought came to my mind as uh, I was thinking too. <laughs> I like that mm-hmm. because as adults, we are moving through life and not actively thinking about what we're doing can affect children. Um, simply because we're just like, oh, we're adults and we're going through whatever we have to get through. Um, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. My TV is just on by itself. That's crazy. TV <laughs> trying to get the knowledge too. Facts. The power of it. Um, kids, just talking to your kids and understanding them and understanding that what you do affects them is a big thing. And I didn't realize that my kids were really paying attention to how I was treating them as if they were human. Because um, I was just like, you know, I'm teach- I'm just doing how I would do when I was a camp counselor. Like, mm-hmm. the only difference is I'm actually sitting in a classroom and I'm teaching you. And I didn't realize how much that impacted them until my kids started emailing me, like, recently because great time. <laughs> and, you know, some of them trying to catch up um, because it's easy to fall behind when everything's virtual because you're just like, I just want to log off and not worry about anything. You know, end up having to worry because you forget. And a lot of, one of my kids, she was like, it's, it's funny because of how she phrased it, but she was like, I really like you as a teacher because you're understanding and you're actually nice. Like, mm-hmm. Because of me identifying with my kids and understanding that you, I went through the same thing you did. Like, you were abruptly sent home from school. You have not been back in the building except for maybe once or twice since you had to leave and never come back. And you under, and you now know that I understand that and I'm able to give you grace within reason mm-hmm. because some will take advantage. Um, so, Knowing that my kids have teachers that don't understand that, but they know that because I'm here and I'm with them and I understand that and they see me interact with teachers who understand that, it's, like, so fulfilling to me. Also, I thought about something else as, like, advice for identity in educators is, as an educator, because an educator can be anybody, an educator can simply be somebody who works in policy. Mm-hmm. Knowing the environment you're entering into outside of the kids alone is so important. Um, when I was applying for science teacher jobs over the summer, 
I was applying to middle school and high school because I was like, elementary school is not my speed. Um, but middle school and high school, like, that's where I want to be at because I actually want to, like, make an impact then. I didn't realize that even though you can want to work at a school so bad just by how they look on the outside, does not matter. Um, I didn't feel as confident in my success at the school simply by talking to the administration. Mm-hmm. But the school I work at now, when I interviewed, and I promise you, I did, that was like bottom of my list of schools, simply because I was just like, I don't know, I mean, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, I was at the point of, I was in the space of being a little discouraged because trying to get a job in a pandemic, especially in education school, is really hard. Um, I, when I say when I was interviewed, before I started that interview, I was just like, it's going to be, if I, if they offer me a job, cool. If they don't, whatever, on to the next one, apply somewhere else. Um, It was even to the point where I didn't even wake up early and prepare like I would normally do for the interview. I did a lot of stuff off top, like I was just running my mouth. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But when I got into the interview, I felt so comfortable. Um, And that made me realize that if I got an offer for that school, I would most likely go. and end up being between them and another school, and I chose them because of the school. I was just kind of like, I mean, I felt that, but not as much as I did with the school I'm working with now. And it's simply because the identity of those who I work with align with what I envision for my career as an educator, whether I'm in the classroom or far in the future with other things I want to do as an educator, I felt comfortable. I felt like this is an amazing place to start because of just how they interacted with me in the interview. Like, my principal is also from AC. He's a Morehouse man. And even before knowing that, the way that they greeted me when I logged on Mm. felt different. Like, the interview went smooth, it, and I knew that that's where I wanted to be. So as an educator, you can't just think about the students you want to work with because that's super important, but you also have to understand the environment that you want to work with because if you're in an environment that you don't love, you will not perform as well as an educator with your kids because not only are you stressing about how you have to teach to your kids and making sure you're doing what you need so they're successful, you're stressing about the fact that you don't even like the environment you're in. Like, you just don't, you're not going to perform the way you want to and need to because you don't have support. When I first started teaching, because I came into the classroom a little bit later just because of, like, logistics things, I was immediately welcomed with open arms. Like, My academic coach, she called me that Saturday and was like, okay, well, well, not even Saturday. She called me on Monday, not Monday night, Friday night. 
the week before the I was supposed to start. And she was like, well, tomorrow we can just go over different things that you need to know. And we'll go through it thoroughly. We'll just talk. Get you comfortable with the classroom. And I was like, if I would have went to the other school, I don't think I would have gotten that simply because a lot of workplaces like to say we're a family and you don't always feel it. It's just mm-hmm. something to pull you in. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got there and while I'm still there, I feel it simply because of how they treat each other and how they treated me. Um, even like the team of teachers I work with, I'm the baby. Like my team lead has even told me, you could be my kid. Like <laughs> I still felt a sense of comfort with them, even though I came in late because of how one, they look like me. Two, even though some of the teachers at the school don't look like me, they understand what everybody's environment, personality, whatever else. They understand the importance of knowing those things and respecting those things. So that's that's the other half of knowing your students is knowing where you want to work as well. Such such great advice. Libra, do you have any final thoughts or any final advice before we praise Kamari on her expertise, on her gems <laughs> that she's been dropping all afternoon or evening? Like this episode is really hit home and I'm so grateful um, that you were able to come on the episode today because you really, I'm over here just like, yeah, oh yeah. I, I kind of want to take a note. Yeah, so I'm just absorbing it all. Like, wow, wow. The final thought, oh, no, go ahead, Kabari. <laughs> I was just going to say that might be the the baby educator coming from other educators jumping through. Um, mm-hmm. When I say my great-grandma was an educator, she was an educator in the classroom outside of it. Um, sure. She was also an activist. She was big in that. So understanding my student and the environment is like a big deal to me. So that might be what's jumping out. That's okay. Let it we out. loved it though. We yes, loved it. Exactly. exactly. And it's funny because my last thought relates to that. So whenever we discuss the desire to be accountable, we miss or perhaps we don't emphasize that you have to do it when it's hard. You know, we often think, oh, like I want to take the easy route. You know, I want to be able to sit in it and be comfortable. But accountability and more specifically accountability and related to informing yourself outside of the classroom requires you to sit with the bridges you may have accidentally lit a match under in your ignorance and say, okay, I'm still valid because of that, but I have to act like I am by continuing to learn. Because when people ask for accountability from us, we have a couple of options, but the two loud ones are to lean into the accountability and do the work or to lean back and say, oh, well, you know, you said you're leaving me, right? So bye. And it can be tough, especially at our older, you know, more seasoned ages, because I just had a conversation about this maybe last week. And the two things can be true. Many things can be true at the same time, which is, yes, people asking for accountability from you is an extension of love. Mm -hmm. But love is something that persists over time. So when people step back from you, and more specifically your students step back from you, you still have to commit to the process 
despite the fact that perhaps that relationship is on pause or is terminated because the whole point of the accountability in the first place is so that you do it again. It's not to erase the fact that you did it the first time or that someone you care for did it the first time and you let it slide. But now, Paul, I know this is one of your favorite segments, so you love the episode. I'll let you go into the next part. Sure, sure, sure. So we're at that point where we highlight those who are doing good work or who are just doing great things in their lives, and we want those shout-outs. This is part of our episode. is called Lead by Example. So, Kamari, if you have a candidate for our Lead by Example segment today, we would love for you to share who that individual is. Hmm. I know y'all said to think about this the whole time, <laughs> but that's hard to think about. <laughs> and it's only hard because I know so many people who are doing good things and mm-hmm. what they're doing. Um, first and foremost, simply because I see what she does every day. We live together. Mm-hmm. Um, my best friend, who's also my roommate. Um, She's not a traditional educator, and she's a college coach for a scholarship, and she even works with, like, kids who are still at Morehouse um, Fulfillment that, like, we know, like, we know them through other people we already knew while we were on campus, mm-hmm. and seeing how she actually interacts with her kids, because, like, she's been where they are, she just left, whereas, like, some of her coworkers they're a little bit far removed, so, like, they understand, but they're like, man, I haven't been in school since whatever year. So seeing her actually actively work with these kids who are just entering college or about to leave in forming really good relationships with them over the phone is, like, amazing to, mm. for me to see. Um, also... Other educators who are doing it virtual. Um, I see a lot of my Spelman sisters, especially, seeing them flourish online, doing online teaching. It's so amazing to me. Even those who didn't plan to go into education, they kind of stumbled into it just by chance. Seeing them taking something that could be seen as horrible and making it great is so amazing to me simply because teaching is hard. Um, Nobody tells you about all the extra stuff that comes with it, but doing it virtually is even harder because you don't actually see your kids. Um, And the work is more because you're virtual and people tend to think since you're at home Mm -hmm. or (laughs) you only have to do stuff online, you have more time. And I still have the same 24 hours I did before we <laughs> Seeing them handling it with grace mm-hmm. and doing it very, very well is just amazing to me. So, oh, can we, can we get your friend's name? I don't think you said it, but, you know, Paul has a special thing he does. So we <laughs> want to make sure we honor um, her. For the first one, that's Mariah. Libra, you know Mariah. Uh, you got to be a little more specific. You know, it's 100,000 yeah, Mariah. Well, Mariah <laughs> But you know her. Mariah was like the only person I was always with at the school. So when okay, you hear, okay. you must like another one. That about. helps. But, for all I know is Mariah yeah. Carey in the background. <laughs> <laughs> but Mariah, she, that's 
who that is, but everybody else I've kind of seen, I can't really think of them off the top of my head, but I just see them on their stories and they're posting mm-hmm. how their babies be like, I love you. But we gonna clap for them all though. Facts. Yeah. Shout out Mariah. It's so funny because kids are like them being like, oh my gosh, you're such a great teacher and you ain't never met me in real life. It's so funny. <laughs> Like, well, how do you really know that? I might just be relaxed right now because you're not in my face. But hey, take what you can get because kids are difficult. Um, they don't always say how they feel, especially the older ones, because <laughs> it's but the older ones think they're grown. So, but yeah. <laughs> And now, Paul, that's your cue. <laughs> well, shout out to Mariah and all. Well, hold on, here it is. Shout out to Mariah, the best friend. That's my best friend. That's my best friend. And all the Spellman sisters out there that Kamari just shouted out, highlighted the Instagram stories. We need all that, man. Send that to us so we can know their <laughs> names and shout them out for next time. But keep doing the work that you're doing. Keep being the great stakeholders that you are for students. Awesome. Libra, do you have anybody you want to shout out? Glad you asked, because yes, I do. So I (laughs) want to shout out you, Paul. I want to shout out Mike. And I want to shout out the whole Scholars House team for throwing a wonderful summit yesterday in a pandemic, no less. (laughs) Still trying to not only participate in the development of a whole learning community at a university, Mm. but then still tap in the outside community and saying, hey, we know that a core part of networking is showing you where the need is. So please come be yourselves with us. And I was happy to participate, and I was happy to see everybody else join. So clap it up for yourself, Paul. Yes, and I'm going to combine ours because I was going to shout out you and all of our presenters, our guest presenters who came out. Because <laughs> guess what? Y'all did not have to commit that time. You all didn't have to do what you did yesterday. And yet y'all came out, y'all showed out, and now our students have a bigger platform, a, a bigger network now where they can connect with champions and stakeholders from across the nation because it wasn't just CT. We had people from Maryland. We had people from Mass. Like, uh, I don't think we had Florida. That No, we didn't have any Floridas. But needless to say, some Atlanta brothers, um, but needless to say, all of the presenters, um, whatever presentation you had, whatever capacity you came and supported yesterday, I want to make sure I shout you out. Um, So this is for you. This is for us. This is for the students. This is for our community. We continue doing this work. And I'm so glad to be a part of a community, an initiative that supports black males. And I'm glad to have champions like yourself, Libra, who love to pour into those black males. And all of our presenters from yesterday. Shout out to y'all. B. McGee, I see you. (laughs) and now last but not least everybody the listener question of the day so on our our wonderful instagram at thoughts from counselors we post lots of neat content besides the episodes and today's question is what do you know about learning in a pandemic and as always i'm gonna read it one more time for y'all what do you know about learning in a pandemic because this is a very very rare time Mm. and i think it's important for us to remember to frame that in our thinking so that as we move forward we move with the grace that's deserving of it (laughs) and last but certainly not least 
any key takeaways, which is here, here where you just add maybe a final thought or idea before we close out. And it's okay if you don't have any, because I know this was a robust convo, and yes, we really hit a lot. <laughs> Two hours. First time. Um, I don't think I have any. I think my brain is still going. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> this was a really good conversation. I, I like this topic, um, not even just because I'm an educator, but education is important to talk about. I feel like we talk about it, but we never go in depth with it all the time. I think mm-hmm. it's needed. These conversations are always needed in education, especially with those who are higher up and who can do things about it, because once they see what everybody who on a day-to-day basis is dealing with, they can kind of understand a little bit more about what we need and when it's needed, when it comes to education, especially for the babies, because the babies are who we should really be worried about. Um, the babies and actual teachers, because those are without them, can't really do it. And to sum that up quick, y'all, she's saying that if you don't learn, the babies don't learn. That's so right. Don't cheat yourself, because then you're cheating the baby. It's all connected. <laughs> it's a cycle. Don't break that cycle. Yep, yep. But last but not least, I am Lee with Lester the Third. And I'm Paul Singleton the Second. We signing off, everybody. Enjoy. That's right. Be safe. Need the rock, rock on. DJ Mark need the rock, rock on. Rock the block, need the rock, rock on. 100X need the rock, rock on. Ram Squad need the rock, rock on. BSB need the rock, rock on. And the Bobby Dance need the rock, rock on. And B Force need the rock, rock on. And Larry Ladd need the rock, rock on. And the V need the rock, rock on.